Acts 7.33. This is Stephen's speech to the Sanhedrin. I'll read verses 32-33. I am the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And Moses trembled and did not dare to look. This is the burning bush, by the way. Then the Lord said to him, Take off the sandals from your feet, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that we can learn from what your apostles wrote and taught us. May we believe. May we understand. May we be people who trust you and obey your holy word. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, we did verse 32 last time. So we're looking at the end of this on verse 33. Now, I can't exactly remember how much I talked about this, but we want to talk about holiness and holy ground. Eric and I were just talking about that Friday when we recorded radio. Okay, the claim of the New Testament is that God doesn't now have some territory on the earth that's holy, but he has holy people. Okay, now I think the reason Stephen talked about the burning bush where there was a theophany and God showed up and talked objectively and tangibly to Moses and that that place because of the presence of God was a holy place. Now, what we're going to see, the reason this is important in Acts 7 and Acts in general was there was a dispute about the Christian claims and the Temple Mount. The Sanhedrin knew that Jesus predicted the destruction of the Temple. In their mind, the Temple precinct was a holy place. And so when Jesus predicted the destruction of the Temple, it meant that the Christians the followers of Jesus were like him and were speaking ill of the temple. And therefore, they weren't legitimate. They weren't from God. Now, what we're going to see is that Stephen is defending the Christians and that Israel was apostate and that the temple precinct was no longer a holy place like it had been. Remember the word Ichabod? What did that mean? The glory's departed, right? No glory. See, when Solomon dedicated the temple and the Holy Spirit of God in his presence came into the holy place, what did it say? The priests could not stand to minister. It was so awesome that they couldn't even take it. 
So at least when Solomon was king, the temple was still a holy place. Now we're going to look up some important verses. Again, I'm not 100% sure what we touched on last week, but let's look this one up. It's important. You got the mic there, Brian? Look up for me, Acts 6, 13. We'll see what the dispute was about. They put forward false witnesses who said, this man incessantly speaks against this holy place and the law. Notice the claim. He speaks against this holy place. Stephen is going to claim that this was no longer the case. The temple was no longer the holy place. And yes, Jesus did predict its destruction. Now, Noel, could you read Luke 19, 45 and 46, and Norm, Luke 23, 45, and Eric, you know, you have a mic, Acts 5, 18 through 21. Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, it is written, and my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. Right. So the holy place wasn't so holy. It was a robber's den. So there was an ongoing dispute about this. The Sanhedrin considered a temple precinct holy. The Christians were saying judgment is coming. Jesus announced it. And so that's an ongoing dispute between the Christians in the Sanhedrin. Luke 23, 45. 23 or 24? 20. Oh, excuse me. 23, 45. Okay. 23, 45. The sun being obscured and the veil of the temple was torn in two. Yes. Now, that means there's now access to God by everyone not just the high priest. I I remember last time we did talk about that. Eric talked about it. Now, Eric, Acts 5, 18 to 21. They arrested the apostles and put them in public prison. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out and said, go and stand in the temple and speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple at daybreak and began to preach. So there was a dispute going on at and about the temple. The temple became a place where the gospel was preached. The Sanhedrin wanted to preserve the old way, the high priesthood, but they preached Christ at the temple. Now, you know this from memory, Eric, 1 John 5:19. Why don't you tell people what we were talking about on the radio. 1 John 5.19. I'll just back up one verse. Verse 18, it says, We know that everyone who has been born of God does not keep on sinning, but he who was born of God protects him, and the evil one does not touch him. We know that we are from God, and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. 
And what you and I were talking about on the radio, Bob, was that the whole world is in, seen as in rebellion against God. And so you can't escape this rebellion geographically. There's nowhere on the world that you can go. There's not one nation now that belongs to this category of being holy, set apart for God. And so the only way to escape is through the gospel. And so through the gospel, then you escape this sphere that's dominated by Satan, and you're transported into a different sphere that belongs to God. Now, positionally, that's true. Now, physically, we don't change locations. It's not like when you become a Christian, all of a sudden you feel like you're being transported. But think about when you make a reservation at a restaurant, you have that reservation so it's guaranteed that you have a place there, even though you haven't experienced it yet. So what happens at the parousy of Christ when he returns, we're going to actually experience what we have positionally. We're going to be in this kingdom. So geographically, all of a sudden there will be a holy place. In fact, the whole world will be full, will be full of the glory of God. And so then it becomes geographical again. Good. Yeah, amen. Awesome. Yeah. Well, we had, we had quite a radio recording on that whole issue. And we're trying to convince people that when they're converted they become a temple of the Holy Spirit. So not the temple in Jerusalem, in the holy place, the veil is rent. Now holiness comes to all peoples who believe through the gospel. And when you believe, you escape the domain of Satan the evil one does not touch you, and you become a holy person, a saint. So each individual Christian is a temple of the Holy Spirit, according to 1 Corinthians. And Jesus said in Matthew 18, whenever two or more are gathered in my name, there I am in the midst of them. So the gathered church corporately and this is also in Corinthians is a temple of the Holy Spirit and that can be anywhere when we were talking we were talking about this on the radio I've talked about it here like that Christian pastor captured in Iran is stuck in solitary he knows Jesus Christ he didn't have access to what we do. He had no Bible. This is not normative, but it just happened. An extreme situation. But still, that solitary cell held a holy place in Iran, one of the most dark, wicked, demon-possessed nations on earth. But when we believe we become a temple of the Holy Spirit. And see, I'm trying to convince people they don't need an exorcist. Okay, I get all these emails. Well, I'm a Christian, but the demons have got a hold of me. I'm actually using this to preach the gospel because people think they know what spirits are doing. Someone said, I can't believe the gospel because the demons won't let the Holy Spirit in. I just, and I, I feel for these people. So I decided to evangelize this lady 
And I explained to her 1 Corinthians 15, believing that Christ was raised from the dead. I said, if you believe the facts of the gospel, Satan can't keep the Holy Spirit away from you. And you can't trust your feelings. You can't feel the Holy Spirit for certain. Nor do you actually feel these demons for certain. You think that's what's going on. So they're looking for a shaman who knows these things. And I keep pointing them to Christ. So, yes, Mike. When you talk about stuff like that, I was thinking, do you think that people are being confused with their conscience and what they think demons or the Holy Spirit might be speaking. You know, the Bible talks about we can have our conscience seared, our conscience can be weak, our conscience can be strong and encouraged through the word. You know, if, if it's just a confusion out there in Christendom? Well, there is confusion caused by false teaching, and people aren't convinced they're free. And they do have, we do have issues with conscience. I'm preaching through First John. I will get to a verse that says, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart. See, we always want to go to the objective promises of God because we're confused. And then on top of that, I have to tell you this. In one of my articles, I dealt with this Neil Anderson. I have his book, page after page, of checklists. There might be 20. Here's how you know you're cursed. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven. Symptoms or things you did. I used to have a Ouija board. Check the box. Uh, I, I used to read the horoscope in the paper. Check the box. You just go down. There might be 20 of those on one issue. And then another issue, 15 check boxes. Another issue, 10 check boxes. And you're supposed to go through all these to make sure you broke every curse. Otherwise, Satan gets in. And so I got that book and read every page of it with my notations. And I thought, no Christian reading this book will come away thinking anything but that they're cursed. And if you believe all this and you checked all the boxes and you said all the perfunctory prayers of renunciation and curse-breaking, you will still not have assurance because life is complex. And this one person who emailed me said, a witch put a curse on me and I can't get out from under it. So not only do you have everything you ever said or did, you have everything anybody else said or did. And you never know you're blessed. And so I wrote an article saying, this is not possible. How could you come up with these checklists if you ever read the New Testament? Why didn't Paul say that? Why didn't Peter say that? Why did John say, if our heart condemns us, God is greater than our heart? Why didn't he give them a checklist? You might say, well, they didn't have a printing press. Well, he could have verbally told them a checklist. Listen, I have to tell you, Neil Anderson may be sincere. He's a false teacher. 
listen to God, don't listen to Neil Anderson. Now, the Bible tells us this, and this is what we did on the radio. Blessing and cursing, holiness or wickedness, being under God or being under Satan. These issues are not geographical. They're not symptomatic. It's not like you go to the doctor and tell all the symptoms and then somebody gets out a checklist. What are your symptoms? Oh, I think a witch put a curse on you. What are your symptoms? I think you used to read the horoscope or whatever these things are. You used to have a picture of a frog. Oh, I remember that one from the 70s. Frogs were like the Nile, the curse. So if you have a frog, like a little frog, a porcelain one, you brought Satan into your house. Frogs are from Satan. And so people were going through the house, throwing away the frogs. I don't know what happens if you got one in your backyard. Uh, if the dog yeah. bites a frog, they foam at the mouth. So, yeah. So here, here's what Eric and I were talking about. Relational. If you believe the gospel of Jesus Christ, come to God on his terms, believe in Christ, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb, placed into the family of God, become a temple of the Holy Spirit, you're not cursed, you're blessed. <laughs> Believe it. Believe it. And it's not locational. Somebody says, well, I live in a bad part of town, and there's crime all around me. You're not cursed because you live there. The Holy Spirit doesn't leave you because you're in a bad part of town. We use the example of that pastor in Iran. It's a great one. He still was our temple. Iran couldn't get the Holy Spirit out of him. When he finally got out of that jail, he's still confessing Christ. Hallelujah. Are you believing the promises? Forget the checklist. Forget the location. Forget the symptoms. Oh, I feel this way. I feel that way. I'm not a happy person. Listen, believe the promises of God and you're a temple of the Holy Spirit. God promised the fruits of the Spirit. There's no reason for you not to have righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. Romans 14, 17, the kingdom of God. Eric here, O'Brien and then Eric. Uh, in regards to uh, when Eric was on 1 John 5, correct me if I'm wrong, Eric, I remember years ago you had a PowerPoint and it had two circles. And one was one circle was uh, a child of God, and the other circle was child of Satan. And at no time did these circles could or ever would intersect with each other. So when Bob has these emails of people who are saying that they're possessed by this or that, or they got a frog in the backyard or whatever the heck that they have, uh, if they recognize the fact that it's an either-or situation, it's not some of this, a little bit of that. Well, well said. And um, in John seventeen fifteen, this is part of Christ's high priestly prayer. 
He says, Lord, do not take them out of the world, but keep them from the evil one. Amen. And God answers that prayer, obviously. And so if he's going to, and by the way, remember that uh, verb and preposition, tereo, ek, the preposition ek and the verb together mean you're preserved on the outs- outside of the sphere. And we said that's significant because the only other usage is in Revelation 3.10, where we were kept from the hour of trial that comes upon the whole world. But the point is it's preservation on the outside of Satan's sphere. So like Bob is saying, geographically, it doesn't matter where you are. You're always preserved from Satan. And so you don't, and that's a great sense of security because it's not that you, well, I had a bad day. I went back into Satan's domain, and then I had a good day. I repented, and I came back to God's domain, and you go back and forth. No, you're forever secure because God answers Christ's prayer on our behalf. Praise be to God for that. So, yeah. Eric. Yeah, and, and then, you know, the balance to this, um, and this this is an important verse. This First John five nineteen, and I will just tell you years ago, years ago, not that I know everything now, but I know more now than I used to. I think we could all say that. You know, there's a lot of Christians that think life should just be so smooth and and silky and everything wonderful because you know we've triumphed. God has Jesus has won the victory for us. Now that pastor in Iran, he knew better. He knew that the world is in the power of the evil one. He didn't expect there to be no struggles, and so we don't expect that either, but we, we rely on the promises yeah. of, of God to, to, to help us in those struggles. Absolutely, you know. Eric. And God gives greater grace. Absolutely. Amen. If we're in a worse situation, God will give us greater grace. Okay? And see, America has been deceived, especially throughout the 19th century, by post-millennialism. Charles Finney claimed that if we worked hard enough, we could bring the millennium to America in a couple months. Okay, so America was going to be the temple of God. Or you start a city, Zion, Illinois. This is going to be, you move here and you moved into the kingdom of God. Okay, no, it's not a location, it's a relationship. Okay, some places are more pleasant. Oh, yes. <laughs> some places are horrible and miserable. But the Holy Spirit will keep you anywhere you happen to go. I remember I was in a group in 1983 of pastors that went on tour of Israel. And we ended up in the church of the Holy Sepulcher. And yes, I don't know that I've been in a more demonic place. It was so wicked. There were these Greek Orthodox monks in these gray garb going... Ooh. I mean, it looked like a horror movie. <laughs> and somebody said, we got to get out of here. This is just Satan. This is so terrible. And it was. And then the same day we went to Gordon's Calvary. Light. The man was talking about the resurrected Christ. He says, I can't tell you for sure this was the tomb of Christ, 
but we don't worship a tomb. We worship the resurrected Christ. So Gordon's Calvary, beautiful, glorious Christian. Holy Sepulchre, demonic, wicked, horrid. And somebody said, oh, we got to get out of here. The demons. And I, and I said to the, there was a lady with us, and I said to her, no, I quote that verse. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one. If you're not saved and you go to Gordon's Calvary and you stay unbelieving, you're still in a dark place. No matter how beautiful that place is. Some of you are going soon. You're going to see it. You'll see what I'm talking about. If you are saved and you go to the church of the Holy Sepulchre, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave you. Have you been in there, Eric? It's horrible. How would anybody think that was Christian? These monks. And then uh, it's like the Catholics and the Orthodox are fighting each other to see who could be more dark and dismal. Yeah, the monks fight each other. Yeah, they're fighting over who has the place. And I'm saying, who wants it? Hold on. No, we need this, or my job is way harder. Bob, is it Colossians 1.13, where we're rescued, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven? Yeah, 13, 14. 13 and 14. Yes, we're doing probably a six-part yeah. radio series on that. A different domain, a different yeah. sphere. you're transferred. That's what we were talking about on the radio. God transfers us from one domain to the other. We still live in the same house. You don't have to worry. Oh, my house is cursed because who used to live in it? No. If you're a temple of the Holy Spirit, you're blessed. Satan can't touch you. Yeah. And so the checklists are crazy. All right. Now, people read these false teaching books, and they come away believing they got demons. They can't help but believe that. And so when they write me, the first thing I have to do is go back to the gospel. And some of the people aren't really Christian. They just think they are. And so I evangelize. And then the ones who believe, then it takes a lot of effort to help them start thinking like a Christian. Remember first John, if our heart condemns us, does that ever happen? Yes. But God is greater in our heart and knows all things. If God, who knows everything, declared me to be his child and brought me into his kingdom and loves me and protects me, then I'll go by what God says, not what my heart says. Eventually, the heart doesn't condemn us because we're just living by faith and we keep believing whatever God said. Now, I hope this makes sense. We almost went over our radio show again. It's not even published yet. It'll be out there. Let's go. We got to make some progress. We're going to wear out these outlines. Acts 7.34. This is God speaking to Moses at the burning bush. I have surely seen the affliction of my people who are in Egypt. And have heard their groaning. And I've come down 
to deliver them, and now I will send you to Egypt. Now, remember the Sunday school we did on visitation, okay? As a theophany, God literally appeared to Moses. At the Tower of Babel, God came down and saw what they were doing and declared it evil and scattered them. Here is some very concrete language about God seeing, hearing, coming down. The point being to rescue. In the Septuagint, we have this word exareo, which means to choose out. Moses is chosen and sent by God on a mission to deliver God's covenant people through his promise to Abraham to rescue them from their dire situation and to bring them out from, eventually from Egypt to Sinai. And we were talking about this on the radio. He says in Exodus, I think 19, I brought you to myself on eagle's wings. God not only delivers us from darkness, sin, the curse, all of the demonic powers that may be influencing us. He rescues us out of the domain of darkness and he brings us to himself. Hallelujah. God brings us to himself. I've seen, I've heard, and I've come down to deliver. When it comes to Jesus, the Messiah, God saw, God heard, and in the person of Christ, person of Christ, he came down to deliver. He said, I have come to rescue you. Luke 418, for example. Oh, there that is on my outline. At least I think consistently. Brian, read Luke 418. Boy, you want to know this verse. It's central to Luke Acts. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set free those who are oppressed. So Jesus was sent by the Father to set free those who are oppressed. He's on a rescue mission. The Greek word in Colossians is ruomai, to rescue. So this radio series is rescued, transferred, redeemed, and forgiven. Let me talk about legalism a little bit. When people are deceived by legalism, they get very angry about what I'm teaching right now. They don't even want to hear about forgiveness of sins. And you want to know why? Because if you're teaching forgiveness of sins, they're thinking, oh, you gave people an excuse. If, if you tell them that the blood of Jesus cleanses them from sin, then they're going to go sin. So you just give law, 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 and make them feel guilty, and maybe they'll straighten up. Now, if I say rescued, transferred, redeemed, forgiven, 
The legalist says, you're giving people an excuse to sin. My answer is, I didn't make up Colossians 1, 13 and 14. Paul wrote it. Literally, legalists get angry at Paul. Some were mad when I taught through Galatians. Well, I didn't write Galatians. And they never once said that I misinterpreted any single verse. Just don't like it. Let us examine our own hearts. Are we angry at what the Holy Spirit says to us through the apostles? And if we are, doesn't the problem lie with us? Is there some reason we don't want to know we've been rescued? We don't want to know we've been transferred? Do you really think that if we go buy Neil T. Anderson's book with all the checklists of what causes the curse and we go through and start doing a checklist, we're better off spiritually than we are if we believe the promises of God? I don't believe it. It's pride thinking I can keep the law better than the next person. I need to know. Here's what it boils down to. We either are going to preach what God has done and has promised to do for us, or we're going to preach what we think we're going to do for God. I preach what God does for us, and I'm not embarrassed to do so. Does God use us? Yes. Does he send us? Yes. Does he work through us? Yes. But he works through us as we believe his promises and know that we've been rescued. Thank you, Lord. So Moses is sent on a rescue mission. He sees, God does, the affliction of his people and sins. Oh, I have a whole bunch of verses on this. A verse of my, oh, I got to get going. <laughs> Let me give you the highlight. Luke 1.19 sends Gabriel. Luke 4.18 sends Messiah. Luke 7.27 he sends John the Baptist. Luke 9.2 he sends the 12. Luke 10.1 he sends the 72. Acts 3.26 again he sends Messiah. The apostles preached to the Sanhedrin, God sent his son to you, but you rejected him. He sent Moses to Israel. First time they rejected him, didn't they? Well, I better get going here. Verse 35 of Acts 7. This Moses, look at whom they rejected. There it is, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge? This man, Stephen says, God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Moses had, according to Hebrews 11.24, we read last week, 
rejected, same word in the Greek, to be called Pharaoh's son. Moses rejected Egypt and chose to to suffer affliction with the people of God. The people of God rejected Moses, chose affliction under Pharaoh. Now, I'm going to show you why eventually I have a slide, I don't remember where it is, that shows that what Stephen is doing is making an analogy between Moses and Jesus. The whole history of Moses and the whole history of Jesus line up. And his point is ultimately, God sent Jesus to you, Sanhedrin, and you rejected him. Just like your fathers rejected Moses when God sent him, God sent Jesus and you rejected him. So, Jewish leadership, you are the sons of the ones who reject everyone God sends. Yanks, you know what happened? They martyred him. They got so angry, they killed him. How dare you tell us we rejected whom God sent? Let me read ahead here, because I seem to be slow getting to the end of this section of seven, but that's okay, we're learning. Let me read to you Luke 7, 48 to 51, which will show you how Stephen eventually uses the Moses narrative and the Old Testament to convict his listeners. Verse 48, so you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers for they killed them and you build their tombs. Talking about the martyrs in the Old Testament. Therefore, verse 49, also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. So that the blood, verse 50, of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation. 51, 751. From the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary, yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation corporate solidarity and corporate guilt. The only way out is to repent and come to Christ. God sent Jesus, the Redeemer, and they rejected him. Let me see if I can't get another couple of verses. Acts 7, 36, 37. This man, Moses, led them out, performing wonders and signs in Egypt and at the Red Sea and in the wilderness for 40 years. This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. Who is the prophet like Moses? 
Jesus. The link to Jesus is explicit. I'm going to quote Dr. Pole Hill, New American Commentary. Moses, says Dr. Pole Hill, was a type of Christ. Both were sent by God to deliver Israel. Both were denied, rejected by those they were sent to save. But the likeness does not end there. Moses performed wonders and miraculous signs in Egypt, the Red Sea, and in the wilderness. The reference is surely to the plagues in Egypt, the parting of the waters, and the many miracles in the wilderness. But one cannot fail to remember how Jesus also performed signs and wonders, and that he granted the same power to his apostles through his name. They rejected Moses, and now they reject Jesus. He sends many prophets. Finally, he sends his own son, saying, surely they'll respect him. Surely they'll respect him. I love Luke Acts. Think about what God did. Moses Raise up, said that God will raise up a prophet. The New Testament claims, this is from Deuteronomy 18.15, the Lord will raise up for you a prophet like me from among your brothers. That, no doubt, is Jesus. When they were up on the Mount of Transfiguration, Luke 9.33-36, God himself identified Jesus as the one to whom to listen. Okay? You can't get it wrong. This is my beloved son. Listen to him. Voice from heaven. The Mount of Transfiguration is analogous to Sinai. Moses went up on Sinai to receive the law. Jesus went up on the Mount to be identified as the new lawgiver like Moses. Peter says, let's make three tabernacles. No, bad idea. (laughs) One for Elijah, one for Moses, one for Jesus. No, they were left seeing Jesus alone. And the voice says, this is him. This is the one predicted in Deuteronomy 18.15. Acts 7, 38, 39. Oh, I'm at my last slide. We're going to make it. 38, 39. This is the one who was in the congregation in the wilderness with the angel who spoke to him at Mount Sinai and with our fathers. He received living oracles to give to us. Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside. And in their hearts, they turned to Egypt. Now, the next time I preach in, or teach in Acts, we'll begin with verse 39 on my next outline. And I have some slides to lay all this out 
visually for you. Now, Stephen called the law living oracles, showing high regard for it. See, in, uh, Eric, could you read Acts 6.11? It says, Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. So they claimed he blasphemed Moses and God. Who's the blasphemer? Is it Stephen? Stephen's preaching Moses in a very honorable way. Stephen says Moses received living oracles to give to us. Remember Eric's sermon? What advantage is the Jew? What did they have? Oracles of God. What we're going to be doing here is when I get to the next, this is the end of this PowerPoint, I'm going to start with 39 again, and we're going to talk about the host of heaven. Stephen is about to say something that's very important. He's going to say to the Jewish leadership that because you rejected God, you rejected Moses, you rejected the ones he sent, the prophets, God gave you over to the host of heaven. All right? Now, we need to get that into our worldview. All right? According to Deuteronomy 4, 19, after the Tower of Babel, God allotted the host of heaven, or the nations, to the host of heaven. The host of heaven includes fallen beings. I'm going to prove that. But Yahweh was directly over Israel. So under the Old Covenant, there was a geographical distinction. All right? And when Israel was obedient to God, and they had the temple, as I alluded to, when they dedicated Solomon's temple, the presence of the Holy Spirit was so powerful the priests couldn't stand to minister. So they were still under Yahweh at the time of Solomon. They tried to reject him when they chose Saul. Remember God said, no, they haven't rejected you, they rejected me. So they rejected God. Oh, wait until you hear about Saul. You know why they wanted a man taller than everybody else? They wanted their own Nephilim. Saul wasn't a Nephilim, but they wanted one. So they could be like the Canaanites. Oh, boy. They rejected me. But God was still there. Let me explain what's going to happen, all right? I have another PowerPoint. So next week, Eric's going to teach in Jude and Second Peter, right? The week after that, I have a DVD to show. I'm going to also preach. So next week I'm in First John. The week after that, this DVD is about the host of heaven. It's going to explain the second commandment, 
why Israel is not allowed to have images and why God speaks words, all right, and why they built the golden calf because they weren't willing to listen to words and what it means that they were not to be under the host of heaven. We'll go through Deuteronomy 14, Deuteronomy 32, Deuteronomy 26, Isaiah 24, all kinds of verses. And I I found this, my daughter found this DVD. It's better than I could do today. I was young. Well, not really. I was 58. Younger than this. And then, so that'll give Eric a week off to work, get ahead of his sermons. So we'll do the host of heaven. And then the next week, there'll be a, a PowerPoint that goes with the host of heaven for you to write down your questions and issues. The next week, I'll be back to teach, starting with Acts 7.39. So you can ask me whatever you want about that. And then I got slides where we explain Moses Christ. Okay, Moses Christ and how there's an analogy. And we will see why Stephen said God turned him over to the host of heaven. They started acting like pagans, so they got to be under the false gods like the pagans. All right? And then we'll go on and we'll finish this. Through the, eventually we'll get to the martyrdom of Stephen. And I'll tell you what. Having now been in Luke Acts since 2005, you can't make this up. The Lord did this. These themes are so clear and so powerful. And, you know, the Sanhedrin was so hard-hearted. So was Paul. He held their cloaks. He went on a mission to kill Christians, to, to put them in jail. And so this is so important. Once you get this worldview, and it's part and parcel of how you understand how God works with us, you'll never again be tempted to go to Neil Anderson's checklists. You won't think you're under the devil. You won't believe that you're cursed. You won't believe that God left you. And you believe, I hope, the promises of God rather than locations or symptoms. I'm trying so hard to get this clear because literally hundreds and hundreds of emails over 15 years from people saying, I have a demon, how are you going to help me? And this is my attempt to help all of us. So he, Moses, received living oracles. The problem wasn't Moses. The problem wasn't the Ten Commandments. The problem wasn't the law. The problem was our fathers refused to obey him but thrust him aside. Oh, repeated words. 
thrust aside? Somebody look in their Bible. What's doesn't it say something like that in Acts seven thirty? No, Acts seven twenty seven. Who finds it first? You got it, Eric. Go I, ahead. I do. It says. Uh, but the man who was wronging his neighbor thrust him aside, saying, Who made you a ruler and judge over us? So, wow. So, repeated words. That's how biblical writers helped us understand. The first time Moses came, they, using the same in the Greek, thrust him aside. He comes again, goes to Sinai, and again, they thrust him aside. So during those 40 years, they died in the wilderness, didn't they? Whole generation. They thrust Moses aside. The implication, and I'll show you this, is that Jesus came, the greater Moses, and they thrust him aside. Living oracles are contrasted to dead and dumb Idols. See that in verse 40. It says, who is in the congregation? Ecclesia. Word we use for church. Now, Stephen had been accused of blaspheming Moses. But rather than blaspheme Moses, Stephen is doing what the truth given to Moses and through Moses Required. Stephen is the true follower of Moses. Why? Because he received the prophet like Moses that Moses predicted in Deuteronomy 18.15. And therefore Moses was honored by Stephen, yes. Bob, do you remember we were doing radio once and there was that question we were addressing that was given originally to John MacArthur and it was... In Mormonism, they have another canon that comes after the New Testament. And the question was, well, we have a canon that comes after the Old Testament, so why are we allowed to have a canon that superseded the Old Testament in the New, but the Mormons aren't allowed to have the Book of Mormon that comes after the New Testament? And that Deuteronomy 18 was the answer, that the Old Covenant was predicted to be superseded by the greater Moses, but once Christ has come, there's no expectation to supersede him. He's it. Exactly. He's the eternal covenant. And yeah, so there's, that's the it answer. wasn't like at the end of the Bible, John, Peter, and Jude said, well, later, Joseph Smith will come. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when Joseph Smith comes, listen to him. No. Yeah, that's the answer. The New Testament is predicted in the old. The Mormonism's crazy. It is. You know what? It's interesting. Just a little quick comment. Watching all the presidential debates and stuff, and people have their religions. In America, people have a right to believe any religion they want. Okay, we, we're happy that people are free to believe whatever they want. That doesn't mean everything's equally true. Okay? If you were born in a Mormon home, you also have a right to think critically and examine the claims of the Book of Mormon and wonder why did none of these places exist? Why is it like this? And why is it like that? And 
you can decide Mormonism is false. Oh, yes. I grew up in theological liberalism. Pastor said there's no resurrection. There's no miracles. So I left, as I said, I left church, went to the golf course. Slightly less frustrating. (laughs) Anyhow, when I was 20 years old and I came to Christ, I found out the pastor lied. Christ was raised from the dead. He did do miracles. The Bible is true. There is a heaven and hell. I wasn't chained to believe theological liberalism the rest of my life because of the pastor I had when I was 12 years old. Whoever is hearing this, examine. Do you have to be Roman Catholic? Do you have to be Muslim? Do you have to be Mormon? Do you have to be whatever you are? Examine the claims. Look at the evidence. We're not asking you to believe fables. We're not asking you to believe things that are patently false. We're asking you to believe cold, sober truth. Put it to the test. See what it says. And you'll find that Christ is the true greater Moses who came, spoke for God, died for sins, and was raised bodily. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for letting us look into things that angels desire to see. Thank you that we're allowed to understand glorious truths because you opened our eyes by the Holy Spirit. Help us to be obedient and faithful by your grace, in Jesus' name, amen.